You can take your copy of God's Word and turn it with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Last week we found the Apostle Paul comparing the Christian life to a race, and he wants to teach us how to run the race well in such a way that we will grow and flourish as individual Christians and as a church family. Imagine the Christian experience as a lifelong marathon, not a sprint, but a marathon. And the path, the track, the lane that you are running in is called the gospel. That's the lane you want to stay in. And on either side of the lane is a ditch. And either ditch is dangerous. And to fall into either one will impede and impair your progress in the Christian life. Either one can stunt your spiritual growth. Either one can steal your joy. Either one can even destroy a church. And the first ditch is named legalism. And the other is called license. Now, for the majority of the book of Galatians so far, Paul has been dismantling legalism. Legalism is any attempt to earn salvation, to earn favor with God through your own efforts to keep the law. Whether that's the law of God found in the Old Testament, which is what the Galatians were tempted to rely on, or whether that's any sort of standard, any sort of rule from God or created by man. Legalism imposes the standard and says if you live by the standard, you win. If you fail, you lose. Now, initially, the Galatian churches had, in the beginning, responded well to the gospel. Paul had preached to them that favor with God is not found through obedience to God. Instead, salvation comes from God by His grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 7 there in Galatians 5, Paul says to them, you were running well. The Galatians started out strong, staying squarely in the lane of the gospel. But then look what he says to them right after that. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who is impeding your progress in this race? Who cut in on you? Who's getting you off course? Now the culprits, of course, were a legalistic cult, the Judaizers, who insisted that you can't be saved by trusting in Jesus alone, but that you have to obey the Mosaic law found in the Old Testament. You've got to believe in Jesus, plus follow a specific list of rules and regulations. And if you can do all those things, then you'll be a part of God's family. And thanks to the interference of the Judaizers, the Galatians are running just on the edge of the track, and they are about to fall headlong into the ditch of legalism. And so on the one hand, Paul's got to keep them from falling into the ditch on the right side, but he also knows there's a danger of overcorrection and careening into the ditch on the other side, which is license. While legalism is the unbiblical imposition of restrictive rules and regulations, license would be the lifting of any and all constraints on behavior. It's kind of a, an anything-goes attitude. Uh, the theological term for it is antinomianism, meaning against the law. It's a, it's a practical lawlessness. That's the ditch on the left side. And Paul's job as a loving pastor to these Galatians is to help them to plot a safe course between both extremes and keep them running on the firm, stable, reliable path 
of the gospel. So let's see how he begins to do that. Please stand with me now as we get ready to read. We always do this right before the sermon. We, we stand out of respect and reverence for the reading because these are words that are not merely the opinions of men, but they're breathed out by God through the apostles and prophets having really the same authority as if the Lord Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh speaking these things to you. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 13. God word, God's Word says to you, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. This is one of these texts, both this week and next week. It's going to be the, the script, one of these kinds of scriptures where we're going to be tempted to hear them for somebody else. To hear them and think about how other people need to grow and improve uh, in these areas. Father, I pray that you would help us to think about these things in regards to ourselves. Father, help us to do some log searching this morning and next week. Help us to look for the log in our own eye so that we may see clearly so we can help the speck in our brother's eye. Father, that can only happen through the Holy Spirit working in us and humbling us as we encounter your word this morning. So, Father, help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our text today, the Apostle Paul gives three charges to the Galatians. These three charges are meant to help the Galatians and us keep running in the lane of the gospel, avoiding the deadly ditches on either side. And Paul's first exhortation is that we are to embrace liberty. Embrace liberty. Now, very often, Christians think about salvation in terms of what they have been saved from, without recognizing that there are things that we have been saved to, and you have been saved to a life of freedom. So, look with me at verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, here Paul is calling on the Galatians to reject the claims of a legalistic lifestyle along with the slave masters who would seek to pull them back into bondage. In chapter 2, he refers to the Judaizers as false brothers who slipped into the church. Why? To spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Why? So that they might bring us into slavery. Legalists don't like it when Christians enjoy Christian freedom and aren't living according to their standards and their ways. And so their natural instinct is to immediately try to get these Christians under bondage with a spiritual whip in hand, binding the consciences of other Christians in places where their consciences can't be bound, regarding themselves as morally superior and pushing others to conform to their ways. Now that just isn't a first century problem. 
People in churches today create all kinds of legalistic standards. Standards regarding what day of the week one should go to church or what kind of musical style is appropriate in church or, or um, what kind of movie a Christian should watch or how one should spend one's money or whether this kind of ministry is more worthy of participation than that kind of ministry or what translation of the Bible you should use. And the list goes on and on and on. And much of what the legalist majors on are standards that are not explicitly binding on Christians according to the Bible. Maybe there's some biblical principles that help deal with the issue at hand, but it's not explicit. It doesn't mean those issues are not important. Many of them are. But we must be careful never to raise something to a gospel level that's not a part of the gospel. Your entertainment choices are important. They are very important. That's worthy of a whole sermon in and of itself. I think the Bible can and does inform our entertainment decisions. But you know what? Two people might disagree on a certain entertainment choice, and they could both love God and be saved. Can you handle that? Legalists have a hard time handling that. To be trapped in legalism is to bear an unbearable weight. That's why Jesus says of the legalistic Pharisees, In Matthew chapter 23, that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Legalism also means being in bondage to pride. And so Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 to say that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Legalists are prideful because it's all about them. They already feel like they have to earn God's favor, so they they also have this drive to earn man's favor. Legalism means being in bondage to lovelessness. Jesus says to the Pharisees that they excel in keeping the minutia of the law while neglecting weightier matters such as mercy. Now that makes sense. If you think you've got to earn God's love, then you're going to be very hard on people in your own life. You won't be gracious and patient with them because you don't think God is gracious and patient. And the people in your life, guess what? They're going to have to earn your love. And because legalism focuses mainly on outward, external behavior, legalism ultimately means being in bondage to sin, which is ultimately a a matter not of external deeds, but of the heart. And so Jesus says of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 25, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And that's the irony, guys. The legalist may say that he wants holiness, and that he's pushing other people to holiness, but legalism never produces true holiness. Legalism produces people who wind up obeying because they have to, and not from the heart. Guess what? That's not holiness. Folks, do you see the bondage and that kind of living? The kind of misery that can produce? Never being able to measure up. Comparing yourself to other people. Never certain if you've done enough, because there's always more to do. Legalists bind themselves and they bind others. Paul says you weren't called to that. You were called to freedom. I remember counseling someone who lived in legalistic bondage for years. She lived in fear. I got to do things the right way. If I mess up here or if I sin here, if I'm not holy enough or this this thought maybe pops into my brain, God's going to get me. She was in total insecurity about her status with God. 
And when I unpacked the implications of the gospel to her, and I took her through the scriptures, and she began to realize God's acceptance of her was not based on her performance, but on what Christ had done, tears flooded down her face. She couldn't believe it. She had been a Christian for years, but through bad and confusing teaching, did not realize the security of her position in Christ. She's being set free. She's being liberated from the lies of legalism. Friends, all of the things we fear the most find their resolution in the gospel. We fear judgment, but the gospel says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We fear other people, but the gospel teaches us that if God be for us, who can be against us? We fear not measuring up to God's righteous standards, but the gospel says that Jesus measured up, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We fear death, but the gospel tells us that Jesus conquered the grave and we are more than conquerors with him. We fear that maybe God loves us now, but maybe that's going to change. And the good news tells us that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Christian brother, Christian sister, be free. Embrace your liberty. Paul's second exhortation to the Galatians is to reject license. Reject license. If we are free in Christ, if we don't have to worry about law-keeping for our salvation, does that mean that the believer can do whatever he wants and doesn't matter? I think that's actually a concern that the Judaizers raise, because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, Paul seems to anticipate this. And he puts a question in the mouths of his opponents. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Some translations say a promoter of sin. Does this gospel of salvation by faith alone and not works encourage sin? Indeed, why why are people even going to obey in the first place? if their salvation doesn't hinge on their obedience. That's what the legalists would ask. But then you've got people on the other extreme, let's call them libertines, who had fired back at the legalists saying, wait a minute, any attempt to try to push us towards obeying God nullifies the grace of God. So you've got to do away with the concept of obedience altogether. Now, both sides are wrong. And here comes the Apostle Paul, and he's going to lay a gospel path right in the center, which deals with both the legalists and the libertines. Now, the world thinks that freedom is being able to do whatever you want, not having anyone over you telling you what to do, being autonomous. But Paul helps us to understand what freedom is according to the gospel. Look at verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not talking about your skin. He's talking about that part of us that has not yet been perfected. On the one hand, the Bible says that everyone in Christ is a new creation. That means we have a new way of thinking, we have a new way of life, we have new desires, and yet, we can't deny it, we still have sinful desires. We still have patterns of thinking that were ingrained into our minds before we were Christians that keep coming back to tempt us. 
That's why the Bible says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There is still a further renewal that has yet to happen. A Christian has not been perfected. How How many of you know you're not perfect today? All right, a few of you do. There's some of you I'm going to have to talk to you after the service. We can all identify with the Apostle Paul, who says in Philippians chapter 3, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's going back to the analogy of a race. Did you notice that? And he's pressing on towards the finish line where he'll receive the prize, which is that great day where he will see the Lord Jesus face to face and at last be perfect. Won't that be a glorious day? But in the meantime, we still have these desires present. They are by God's grace being eliminated bit by bit, but the process is ongoing. And that remaining indwelling sinful propensity the Bible sometimes refers to as the flesh. Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That word for opportunity was often used in a military context that carries the idea of a launching platform, a beachhead from which an army could make an attack. Paul says, you could misuse your freedom in that way, where you turn your freedom into a base of operations for the flesh, opening the door to all kinds of sinful behavior. Sometimes young people are especially susceptible to the temptation of license. And if they've been raised in legalistic churches or families, even more so. And there's a tendency to overcorrect, and what happens is they just wind up in the opposite ditch. They get to college, they move away or whatever, uh, they're, they're no longer under the bonds of legalism, and suddenly their standards become very loose. They're not concerned about holiness. They they want to be free, they say. And by freedom, they mean experimenting with ways of living that they were denied as a kid, which in the end becomes opportunities for the flesh, and that leads to all kinds of temptations and sinful behavior. And if you confront them about it, they'll just blast you for being a legalist. Don't impose your ways on me. I'm free in Christ. I'm not saved by works. Everything's covered by the blood of Jesus, so I can do as I wish. Folks, if you're dealing with someone like that, guess what? They've swerved off into the other ditch. This isn't a new problem. This has been going on for a long time. During the Reformation, John Calvin had to deal with this in his own ministry. In his treatise against the Libertines, he wrote about the kind of person, quote, who wants to extend Christian liberty to include everything without any exceptions so that nothing may hinder him or prevent him from having a good time. That's what Calvin wrote hundreds of years ago. He goes on to say, These frantic people, without any distinction, abolish all the law, saying it is no longer necessary to keep it, since we've been set free from it. And yet, folks, being set free from sin doesn't mean we are set free to sin. Can you catch the distinction there? The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says in a few verses after that, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. 
Paul there is talking about sin. It's illogical to say, I'm free to sin because I've been set free from sin. doesn't make any sense. Because if you indulge in sin, you actually are going back into slavery. How many times, how many times have I, in my ministry, I've sat across the table from someone in tears who many years ago thought they were being free when they, they first took that, that first hit of drugs or looked at pornography for the first time or lost control in their anger for the first time. And yet years later, they have lost families, or their jobs, or their reputations, because they indulged in something they thought was an expression of freedom, and now they can't stop. Friends, license is just another form of bondage. Both legalism and license are slavery, and ultimately it's a slave to self, being, being a slave to self. If I'm a legalist, it's all about me. My salvation hinges on my efforts. The glory comes to me instead of God. I'm the one who's getting it together, and since it all hinges on me, guess what? I've got to make other people get in line, or they won't obey. And since it all hinges on me, I've got to be as externally good as possible. Others need to see me as good, so I need to perform to impress others, and I can't let others be superior to me, because if others are superior to me, that means I'm not doing enough. And I'm going to be constantly comparing myself to others in the church and tearing them down to lift myself up. And the more, uh, the more above them I am, the better I can feel about myself and the more God will think I'm better than them. But if I'm in the ditch of licentiousness, of license, that's all about me too, isn't it? I can do what I want to do. I can behave how I want to behave. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. If someone comes and confronts me about my sin, I'm going to get angry and hostile because it threatens my definition of freedom. My life is my life. And if other people are hurt or offended, or if they stumble in their Christian walk because of what I'm doing, that's not my problem. I'm free in Christ. You see, if I'm into extreme license, it becomes all about me too. That's why Paul gives a sober warning in verse 15 of Galatians 5. He says, But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What a sober warning for the church. What a sober warning for this church. The image there is of a pack of wild beasts on a feeding frenzy. And they've got the taste of blood. And they are just going at it. And they are feeding on one another. They are tearing one another to shreds. That's what happens in churches where both legalism and license are allowed to thrive and where the principles of the gospel fall by the wayside. That's what's going to happen to Harbin's church if we put ourselves at the center. If we treat others not as image bearers who deserve dignity and respect and grace, but we instead treat one another as mere obstacles that are preventing us from getting what we want. If we are not vigilant, we too will devour one another to the point where there will be no more Harbin's church. John Calvin writes this. I wish we could always remember when the devil tempts us to disputes that the disagreement of members within the church can lead to nothing else than the ruin and consumption of the whole body. How distressing, how mad it is that we who are members of the same body should voluntarily conspire together for mutual destruction. 
So what's the solution? What keeps us out of the ditch of legalism and out of the ditch of license and helps us to live according to the gospel? What does true Christian freedom look like in practice in the church? And Paul gives us the answer, be a slave. Be a slave. Is that surprising to you? Verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That word serve comes from the Greek word for slave. That's shocking. Throughout Galatians, the word slave has been cast in negative terms. But now Paul suddenly puts a stunning twist in his epistle. Because we discover that the purpose of our freedom is not so that we squander it on our own selfish desires. Instead, you have been set free to be a slave to others. And doesn't it surprise you that Paul, uh, what Paul says in his next verse, in verse 14? He says, where the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's surprising because you would think that he would say that the whole law is fulfilled in loving God. Why would Paul go in that direction? Because if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, the Apostle John writes, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The arena, the main arena that we demonstrate, express, live out our love for God is not when you are in the woods isolated by yourself looking at the stars and having warm fuzzies. The main arena for the demonstration of your love for God is how you treat the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, how you treat others. There is this unbreakable link between love of God and love of others. If you have a hard time loving people, don't blame it on that unlovable scoundrel that you are dealing with. If you have a hard time loving people, it's because you have a hard time loving God. That is more profound than I have time to even delve into, but I, as your pastor, would encourage you this week to, to think about that. Meditate on that. So when Paul writes about the fulfillment of the law happening as we are being slaves to one another in love, it is assumed that we are ultimately slaves to God. And this concept of being a slave of God makes some people really nervous. They're okay with the idea of being a, a friend of God, of loving God, maybe even softening it a little bit and saying a servant of God, but being a slave of God, that shakes some people up. But this concept is all over the Bible. Paul often in his epistles refers to himself as slave, a slave of God. Or in Romans, it talks about us being slaves of, of righteousness. Often in the New Testament, you see that word servant. The translators of your English Bibles have, have softened the actual original word uh, that, that's related to the Greek word doulos, which means slave. No one in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is man ever viewed as autonomous. Everyone serves a master. But we need to ask ourselves a question, what's the difference? What's the difference between the slavery of the freed believer 
and the slavery, the bondage of legalism. Here's an illustration out of the Old Testament. In Exodus 21, there were regulations for slavery. People could sell themselves into slavery in Israel as a means of paying off their debts. And the Old Testament gives some regulations for how that is to work. And it says in Exodus 21, I'm I'm reading some excerpts here from this. Uh, It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he, he shall go out free. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. So what's the point? The point is that this man served for six years in a kind of legalistic bondage. Why? He served because he had to. But in the seventh year, the year where he had the option of going free, he chooses to stay a slave. Why? What's the motivation for him to keep on serving? Out of dutiful obligation? No. Because he's forced and pressured to against his will? No. No, he stays because he loves his master. That's the motive in the heart. In the years prior, his service had been a mere external requirement, but that external requirement had, through love, changed into an internal affection for his master, and now that is the new motive. He will no longer serve and obey because he has to. He now does it out of love for the master, and it is a joyful, voluntary slavery. That's the difference between the legalist and the one who's truly free. It's all about motive. It's all about the heart. It's about love. You go back to Jesus' uh, teachings against the Pharisees. What were the motives of the legalistic Pharisees? Not love for God. Everything they did was done to be seen by others. Everything they did was out of dutiful obligation. They looked holy on the outside, but inside they were corrupt and rotten. Jesus says of them, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There was no love of God, and there was no love for others in their hearts. Their external obedience meant nothing to God. That's why Paul says back up in Galatians 5 verse 6, that at the end of the day, it's not about externals. What matters is faith working through love. It's why in verse 13, he doesn't just say, serve one another, But he says, through love, serve one another. If you drop the word love, a legalist could obey that command, at least externally. But his motives would be all wrong. And guess what? The libertine who has given himself over to immorality can't love others well either. Because at the end of the day, it's all about his desires, his preferences, his pleasures. And so the libertine is in bondage to self. And the gospel comes in to set both the legalist and the libertine free and rescue us from the confines of sinful self-centeredness. To the legalist, the gospel says, get your eyes off yourself. It's not about you. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your strength. You're not in the center. Jesus is in the center. You don't save. Jesus saves. So put your hope in him and he will empower you to be holy. 
where you are keeping God's law, and it's not a vain attempt to try to be saved as you're keeping God's law. Instead, it's flowing from a transformed heart that's already been saved. And to the one trapped in the bondage of license, the gospel says, get your eyes off of yourself. You are not at the center. Jesus is at the center. You are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he died for all, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.1, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus didn't, didn't come and bleed and suffer and die so that you could remain in bondage to yourself. Jesus came to liberate you from yourself. So you could serve God in others as empowered by God. Christian freedom means being free to joyfully serve God through faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he says, through that, the whole law is fulfilled. And what Paul's doing here is he's putting the law in its proper place. To the legalists, the law was everything. To the libertines, it was nothing. And once again, Paul is charting a gospel course down the middle of both extremes. One of the things we learn in Galatians is that there is a purpose for the law for unbelievers, and there is a purpose for the law for believers. For unbelievers, the purpose of the law is not to save, but to demonstrate man's guilt before God. The law makes us aware of our need to the point where we abandon hope in ourselves, and the law drives us to Christ, whom we cast our hope for salvation on. Once we are saved by Christ, the moral law of God doesn't go away, but its purpose changes. Now that we've been saved by Christ and brought into God's family, the law's purpose is not condemnation, and instead tells us how we now, as members of God's household, should live. The law's purpose is not fulfilled when we try to use it as a means of salvation, and the law's purpose is not fulfilled when we try to discard it. Instead, we fulfill the law when we love, and it's a love flowing from faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon is very helpful on this point. Spurgeon writes, quote, What is God's law now? It is not above the Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over the Christian and say, If you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide his rule, his pattern. We are not under law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. The law is good and excellent if it keep its place. Unquote. And so we see that God's call to freedom is one not marked by isolation but by loving community in the church. Indeed, we are to be so committed to one another in the church to such a degree that it looks like slavery. If we, Harbin's church, were to be loving slaves to one another, if we were to grow in that, 
loving one another as we love ourselves, what would that look like? What would happen? There would be no maliciousness. There would be no gossip. There would be no fights and disputes when we didn't get our way. That, that happens in every church, by the way, even this one. Because no church is perfect. If we were loving slaves to one another and we resist legalism and we abandon license, what would happen? There would be 70 times 7 forgiveness and tenderheartedness among us. Joyful service. Great patience. Sacrificial giving. Constant prayer for one another. Loving those who are difficult to love and much, much more. And we would do it with joy. And you're thinking, boy, we've got a long way to go as a church, don't we? We've got a long way to go because you personally have a long way to go. And so do I. But God doesn't call us to do something He hasn't already done. Our ultimate example of selfless, slave-like love is the Savior. Do you remember what happened on that night before He was crucified? He was in the room with His disciples. And, you know, back then when one entered a home, their sandaled feet were extremely gross and disgusting, dirty, walking the dusty streets all day. There's no concrete. And if you're inviting someone into your house, the hospitable thing to do would be to give your guest a basin of water so they could wash their feet. You're responsible for providing the water. They're responsible for taking care of their own feet. People just didn't wash other people's feet. Not, not even a Jewish slave could be compelled to wash someone's feet. The only person who would ever engage in such a lowly activity would be the lowest-ranking Gentile servant. The lowest of the low. The bottom of the barrel. So can you imagine how shocking it would be for the disciples to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Creator of all, get down on His knees and wash the stinky, grimy, dirt-caked feet of His disciples, scrubbing the dirt from their skin between their toes, removing all of the stains. What we have here is nothing less than the creator of the universe on his knees. Taking the role of a slave. In love. Serving the disciples. One pair of those feet would belong to a disciple who would deny him three times in just a few hours. Another pair of those feet belonged to a man who in just a few minutes would betray Jesus to his death. And Jesus knew that was going to happen, and he did it anyway. And of course, that was just an illustration of a greater act of slavish service Jesus would do soon after that. Because Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
by the way, there's that word for slave again. I wish they just put slave in there. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And whom did he die for? Cute, cuddly, lovable people? No. He died for you and me. Enemies of God. Ones who did not deserve love, did not deserve mercy, did not deserve forgiveness. But he died for you and on the cross took the punishment that you deserved so that you could receive mercy and forgiveness so that you might be reconciled to him. And Jesus, knowing that this is his mission and and what he's going to do and the cost that he's about to pay, he says to his disciples, he says to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Right? Do you, get, do you feel the weight of that? You think about the act of love that Jesus is about to do. And he's saying, you do that for one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Why will all people know that you belong to Jesus when we as a church do that for one another? Because that's supernatural. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in the world. But it should happen among the people of God. And you're thinking, wow, that is really weighty. That is really heavy. How in the world can I do that? I can't do that on my own. You can't. To be continued next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I may not have done this passage justice this morning, but it's all the more reason why I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit is present with us to do justice to the passage in our hearts. And so I pray now that you would help us in our meditation and our reflection on this passage to know what it means in our life personally, not in the life of people sitting next to us, in our lives personally, what it means to live in Christian freedom, to reject the bondage of legalism, to do away with the shackles of license and slavery to self, and to know what it looks like for us practically in the church and in the world to live as free men and women in Christ, loving others as we love ourselves. Father, thank you that we are not called to do something on our own and in our own strength, but we do it in the strength that God supplies through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray even now that you would prepare our hearts for next week's message as we begin to learn how to lean on the Holy Spirit to serve others and serve you in love. Thank you for the slavish love of your son, taking the form of a slave, being nailed to the cross so that we might be liberated from bondage, so that we might be free for the very first time 
to serve the living God. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.